And once you have some new kind of foundational piece of technology, a bunch of new stuff happens with it that you wouldn't really have been able to imagine even existing before. It's very hard to explain if you if you were pre-iPhone, like what people are doing with TikTok. You know, that stuff is like doesn't really even make sense until you like imagine, oh, you have these phones, you can do all these sorts of crazy things with them. You have all these sort of location services built into them. There's all these other like capabilities. Like you have to kind of have the phone first before you can even imagine like a thing like TikTok or a thing like Instagram or whatever. And I think AI is to some extent that where like whatever happens to it, it's going to be the the people see it and they're like, oh, great, this is a chatbot. Okay, we're going to go build a bunch of chatbots. It's like, nah, probably not. Like that's obviously a first thing when you first build a phone, a bunch of people build sort of the easy extension of what the world was like before. But once you start to actually play with it, you realize, oh, this thing can do all these sort of unexpected and weird things. Our mind has opened up to a bunch of ideas that we wouldn't have really thought of until, until we got to this point. Hello, everyone. I'm Adele, data evangelist and educator at DataCamp. And if you're new here, DataFramed is a weekly podcast in which we explore how individuals and organizations can succeed with data and AI. I am super excited for this week on DataFrame. Arguably one of the biggest surprises of the generative AI revolution over the past two years lies in the counterintuitiveness of its most successful use cases. Counter to most predictions made about AI years ago, AI-assisted coding, specifically AI-assisted data work, has been surprisingly one of the biggest killer apps of generative AI tools and co-pilots. So this week, we're releasing four episodes focused on how AI is changing the modern data stack and the analytics profession at large. The modern data stack is often an ambiguous and all-encompassing term, so we intentionally wanted to cover the impact of AI on the modern data stack from different angles. Here's what you can expect. Today's episode will be with the one and only Ben Stansel, CTO at Mode and Field CTO at ThoughtSpot, where we'll talk about how the analytics profession could become weird as LLMs become more powerful. Tuesday, we'll be speaking with Ari Kaplan and Robin Sutara, head evangelist and field CTO at Databricks, respectively, on how AI is transforming the modern data warehouse. Wednesday, we'll be speaking with Sridhar Ramswamy, senior vice president of AI at Snowflake, on how AI is changing Snowflake's modern data warehouse. And finally, Thursday, we'll take a look at the impact AI has on the hardware powering many analytics workflows, as we speak with Nuri Sankaya, VP of AI product marketing at Intel. As I mentioned, today's episode is with Ben Stansel, CTO at Mode and Field CTO at ThoughtSpot. Throughout the episode, Ben and I talk about the nature of AI-assisted analytics workflow, the potential for generative AI in assisted problem solving, how he imagines analytics workflows to look like in the future, and a lot more. If you enjoyed this episode and this series, make sure to let us know in the ratings, the comments, on social. And now, on to today's episode. Ben Stansel, it's great to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you are the co-founder and chief technology officer of Mode, which was acquired by ThoughtSpot this year. You also have an incredible Substack that I highly recommend listeners subscribe to, a lot of thought-provoking takes on the data space. We also have a bit of a shared history that we both tried our hand at political science. You were a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in DC, and I was a research assistant at the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. So maybe before we deep dive into the meat of today's chat, Walk us through the journey from starting at Carnegie to ending up founding Mode and getting into the data space. So I graduated from college in 2009, which is relevant because nobody hired 
for any jobs. And like 2009 was when everybody was getting fired. People were getting offers and then getting them revoked before they got there. And so like the one place that was hiring people was DC. This was basically the only place you could find jobs. So I, I, my background was in, was in economics. And so ended up working at Carnegie. Carnegie was like a think tank. For those who aren't familiar, think tanks are basically like a half academic, half policy organization where you do research, but it's aimed at being like, how do you affect policy in more specific ways? It's not academic research as much as it's saying, hey, we should enact this policy or this is what we think of this bill or whatever. And so I ended up there partly out of like, it was related to what I was doing, but it was also the job you could find in, in 2009. And so it's like very interesting work in that you're thinking about big problems. The way that you do the analysis is interesting. I, I was basically like looking at economic data and trying to make recommendations about what various policymakers should do. However, nobody listens to you. Like, like you are <laughs> random 20 something year old writing like policy briefs that are like then sent to Congress and like Congress does not care. You are eight steps away from anybody doing anything with this thing. And so it's like academically interesting, but not something it felt like this is I'm just, I'm, you know, yelling into the void here. And so I ended up, as you are familiar, think tanks are dead end jobs in some ways, like you Typically, are there stepping stones to grad school or some other like government job? And then you come back to the think tank when you're on the cusp of retirement. And so I started looking for other things. I uh, had a couple of friends who had moved out to San Francisco, liked the jobs they had there, and then found a job at a company called Yammer that was just like a, it was like a data analyst job. It was, you know, look at data, make recommendations for the company. In some ways, very similar to what the think tank job was, which was like, here's an ambiguous problem go do a bunch of analysis, make a recommendation, except instead of the recommendation being to Ben Bernanke, the recommendation was to a PM that you sat next to. So less impactful in the sense that you weren't trying to, you know, look at policies that could change the world. But the person who you're talking to was like, would listen to you. And, and you, were, <laughs> you weren't like a free consultant that they never asked for that just decided to make recommendations. You were someone who was there to like try to help them. And so same structure of job, much more felt like you were actually doing something that somebody cared about. Yeah, I can attest to that. It's definitely intellectually very stimulating, but the impact is is quite limited in, in the think tech space. And maybe following up after your experience in Yammer, or maybe give us the why behind founding mode. What was the problem you were trying to solve for data teams when you first had the idea for mode? So I joined this team at Yammer. We were the sort of data team that our job was not to build dashboards and just reports, but we also weren't the kind of like data science, do hard math, in a corner and come out with a model that predicts the world type of stuff. Our job was basically the marketing team would come to us and be like, we're holding another event. Do we hold it in San Francisco or New York? Like help us figure out the right place to do it. And you do some stuff and be like, well, we have customers here, prospects here. This is where we think we should do it. Or like product team would be trying to make a decision about do we ship feature A or B or those sorts of things. And so we essentially needed a tool that was technical enough for us as a data team to do a bunch of exploratory analysis that we were working with data and Vertica at this point. So it was like a database writing a bunch of SQL queries, doing that kind of stuff. But we also had to like collaborate very closely with the people who were next to us and they weren't technical. And so we just needed to be able to share like reports and stuff for them to be able to, to do their work as well. And so we ended up building this internal tool inside of Yammer that was basically like a SQL query editor in a browser where you could run queries and then send them off via URL to other people who could then just look at charts of the results. And it ended up being like this really impactful tool inside of Yammer and then inside of actually Microsoft after, after the company got bought because it allowed us to work as like the technical data team in the way that we wanted to work, but we could very easily like collaborate with the folks we were working with because we weren't working in like a Jupiter or in our studio or something that we couldn't send to them. We were working in a thing that we could very easily like, you know, there was a back and forth there that was easy where both of us kind of had a, 
a view of the data and the results that like fit kind of our technical abilities. And so actually after we, we built this, we started to realize that one, this was an internal tool that was pretty successful inside of VMware, it was successful inside of Microsoft. A bunch of other companies around Silicon Valley had actually built similar things for their, their data team. So Facebook, Airbnb, Spotify, Pinterest, Uber, all had these kind of like query tools in a browser type of thing. And so essentially me and the other two folks started it, we're kind of like, hey, if everybody's building this thing, if everybody thinks it's been successful inside of a company like Microsoft, like maybe there's a market for it where somebody should just build it and turn it into a product where everybody can have. And so that was basically the impetus of the idea was the success of this internal tool that we had built and thinking that as databases become cheaper, as data teams become more of a thing, that this is the type of way that they're going to interact with, with their kind of business stakeholders. And so can we build a tool that, that leans into that kind of workflow? That's great. And in a lot of ways, you know, maybe this is a bit of a wide question. You know, your experience at Yammer, which was at the time quite an advanced organization from a data perspective for the time, led to the founding of a tool like Mode. How have you seen maybe the analytics space evolve since that time? What do you think are the main highlights of evolution that you've seen in the space? I mean, there's a lot. When we started Mode, one of the biggest objections that we ran into was it was a cloud tool. Like it was a SaaS product and there were a lot of people who were like, well, data, SaaS stuff, I don't know that that makes any sense. Like we're not going to buy that. This was one of the hardest things we had to sell around in the very early days was just general nervousness about the cloud, specifically as it relates to data. Like people, Salesforce was obviously like already a very big thing at that point. Cloud software was a thing, but like data in the cloud was kind of like, I don't know about that. That changed a lot. Redshift was probably the first big, hey, this is a thing that might actually work. Snowflake, I think, was the, and this was much later, but like the Snowflake IPO was somewhat of a big moment in this because it was like a bunch of people who, you know, the people who pay attention to things with very big dollar signs uh, in front of them started to realize like, oh, cloud data is like clearly a, potentially a very, very, very big business. That changed, but it changed gradually over time. The other thing that that also was very different is when we first started pitching mode, one of the biggest objections we got from like VCs, and VCs don't, not that VCs know everything, but like VCs are a decent reflection of like conventional wisdom of what people think about these sorts of markets, was who's going to use this thing? This is a tool that writes SQL. Who writes SQL anymore? Like, isn't that over? I thought we we had Hadoop and like, why does SQL matter anymore? And there's only a hand, like, these are a bunch of handful of like nerdy IT people in the back corner that do it. What What is this all about? And I think one, the the like Hadoop era didn't really stick. And so moved away from that. But two, things like the modern data stack and a lot of the philosophies in that of it being a very SQL heavy thing of tools like DBT and again, the popularity of something like Snowflake, which is obviously a very SQL heavy you know, database, that became a much more like, oh, there are a lot of people whose job it is, is to to build data infrastructure that is primarily SQL-based. And so that that the notion of this like modern data team, that there are people who are writing SQL, they're trying to answer questions, they're not just building dashboards and reports, they're not like the capital D data scientists. Their job is to sort of like figure out what an organization does with its data and make it useful. People were skeptical of that idea in 2013, 2014. Now it's that would became much more of like, this is the way that, that this stuff gets done. If anything, the analyst has become the bread and butter of a successful data team and today, you know, in driving the data informed organization to quote your Substack. Now, actually we can talk about the modern data stack quite a lot, but what I'm talk to you about today is especially the potential impact of AI on the analytics workflow. This is something I've seen you write quite a lot about in your Substack, and I find, you know, a lot of interesting takes here. And 
One thing that we chatted about behind the scenes when we were talking about this episode that resonated with me a lot is that you talked about AI-assisted analytics workflow and the future being weird. Uh, and I think the word weird does a better job than most other adjectives describing the potential world we're heading into. So maybe to set the stage, what do you mean when you say the future of AI and data will be weird? Well, so two things, I guess. One is, generally to me, the way like, tech, and this is not a novel thought necessarily, but the way that like technology and stuff changes, like big technological shifts change how people do things. It's like teleportation in some ways that we don't like sort of walk slowly towards it where we can see what's coming and it's like, oh, we see it in the distance and we get closer to it. It's like a big thing comes out and you sort of get teleported to a new place where you have no idea what's on the other side of that thing until you get there. Like if you like snap your fingers, and like, guess what? You're going to teleport somewhere. You're like, I have no idea where I could, I could end up anywhere. Like it's impossible to imagine the next five steps when, when you do that. And I think there's like a, a version of that where these big changes happen. And once you have some new kind of foundational piece of technology, a bunch of new stuff happens with it that you wouldn't really have been able to imagine even existing before. It's very hard to explain if you if you were pre-iPhone, like what people are doing with TikTok. You know, that stuff is like doesn't really even make sense until you like imagine, oh, you have these phones, you can do all these sorts of crazy things with them. You have all these sort of location services built into them. There's all these other like capabilities. Like you have to kind of have the phone first before you can even imagine like a thing like TikTok or a thing like Instagram or whatever. And I think AI is to some extent that where like whatever happens to it, it's going to be the, the people see it and they're like, oh, great, this is a chatbot. Okay, we're going to go build a bunch of chatbots. It's like, nah, probably not. Like, that's obviously a first thing when you first build a phone. A bunch of people build sort of the easy extension of what the world was like before. But once you start to actually play with it, you realize, oh, this thing can do all these sort of unexpected and weird things. Our mind has opened up to a bunch of ideas that we wouldn't have really thought of until, until we got to this point. So generally to me, that's that's like, it's going to be weird because it's it's a big foundational shift that we can't sort of just extrapolate the previous, what we've been doing. It's like, it's like a discontinuity. The other thing to me about AI and LLM specifically are a very weird kind of technology where like, they're very human in that a lot of the things that humans do that like, they are pretty creative. They aren't very good at taking explicit directions and doing exactly what you want them to. They do unexpected things. You can treat them almost like humans where like consistently to me, the thing that is surprising is when you want them to do something better, you do the same thing you would with a person where you like, you just give it more information. You explain it more stuff. You ask it for more specific results. You tell it to give it feedback and it learns. Like there's a bunch of weird stuff in that. That's like a pretty weird, it's not a, it's a computer obviously, but it's not like a computer that thinks the way that, that we yeah, I've always thought of computers thinking. And so to me, like, what happens to that? I have no idea. There was this, it was the Ilya, the... the mm -hmm. you know, uh, Ilya Yeah. Chief, uh, Chief the, scientist. Whatever he is currently now at OpenAI. Yeah. Um, had a thing about, like, people complaining about hallucination in, in LLMs. And he's kind of like, look, hallucination is the point. Like, hallucination is, it, it's not hallucination, it's creativity. And the, the problem is not, the problem, like he was comparing LLMs to search and he was saying, the problem with search is it has no creativity. There is, you, you search for something, you're going to get the same thing all the time. Like it, it is not a creative thing, but LLMs are create like that. That is sort of a, the benefit of it. And I don't think we've grasped that yet. I think we've like view them as how do we make them perfect little robots that do exactly the task we want? And it's like, uh, they're not really that. 
they're this weird creative robot. And that's a crazy thing to think about. But what happens with that? I don't know. But we're not used to, I think, having a tool that is more creative than we are in a lot of ways, but is not good at following directions. Yeah, and there's a lot to unpack here. And you mentioned at the beginning is that you compared large language models and AI to the, to the iPhone and that, you know, it's hard to explain TikTok pre-iPhone. And I completely agree with that notion that AI will usher in an ecosystem of applications and tools that we didn't think possible. And, you know, in a lot of ways, chatbots today are those first waves of apps that we've seen after the iPod Touch and the iPhone was released. Do you remember, for example, the beer app? <laughs> where yeah. you could, yeah, we are, we're seeing kind of the first wave of applications of large language models today. Uh, and in the future, we'll see, I think, a lot more robust ecosystem of tools emerge. But let's ground this discussion maybe right now, given the talking about applications to the capabilities of large language models and coding workflows and analytics workflows, right? You know, we've seen a lot of promise, actually, when it comes to coding workflows, things like GitHub Copilot, the ChatGPT data analysis, formerly known as Code Interpreter. So maybe anchoring our conversation first in the present and present capabilities, how do you view the current capabilities of large language models and being useful in coding or data workflows? Where are they effective and where are their limits? I would say two things about that. I think one is they are not effective at all as the wrapper around ChatGPT does not work. I think that there's, you know, there are the 1,000 YC startups that are like, it's your data analyst assistant. You ask it a business question and magically you get an answer. Like, what was my revenue in California last quarter? And, you know, it writes a SQL query for you or whatever. This is a pretty common thing. People have built versions of these. They have basically sort of like prompt engineered chat GPT and fed it a little bit of context about your data and hope it writes a good SQL query. Those are the sorts of things where like it does a good enough job to convince you that this might work, but it really doesn't work. So it, it's like those things are, you can do it on top of these very toy data sets. You can do it on top of the mm -hmm. schema that's got four tables and 12 columns total, and they're all perfectly named. And you're asking it like questions that you can figure out from the schema. And it will do a thing that is like convincing enough to be like, ah, yes, this might actually work. But then when you start to use it for real, it does not work in, in actual business context at all. And especially when you're trying to get an answer that's very, very, like, the CEO asked, what was our revenue in California? You can't be like, well, here's our best guess. That doesn't really make sense. So I think in those cases, it is not, it is not good. You can do a bunch of work around it that is, if you add a, a ton of work underneath it, like you can coerce it into doing the right thing if you prompt it with a bunch of the right stuff, if you do a bunch of work to figure out when somebody asks, what is our revenue in California? What does that question really mean? What is the schema that we should be feeding it? Like, there is a lot of underlying infrastructure there that you can do that improves that a lot. Even there, though, I think it's tough. It's hard to, like, go from question to SQL query, no matter how much context you give them. Maybe that'll get better, but, like, currently, that's a pretty, pretty heavy lift. The thing that I think it does a better job of is, so we have a, are building sort of a tool inside a mode that is basically this that we're starting to roll out to some customers. The aim is much more of a co-pilot style of thing, where instead of asking a business question, you are basically asking for help to do the, like it is for the technical person asking for help to do the thing that they want to do. Where you as, a, as an analyst get asked, what is our revenue in California? You roughly know the SQL query you have to write to do that, but you don't want to do all the tedious work of like, how exactly do I define this join? What are these like various functions in SQL that I want to do? I got to bucket it by something. I don't want to write the giant cake statement that does that. You are essentially using an LLM to go from pseudocode to finished query 
as opposed to from business question to like query that it that it does. There's a bunch of things where it's like, if you go from business question to query, it writes queries that are kind of weird. Like, even if they're right, they're hard to parse. And so if you're like, I don't fully trust it, I have to go through and read it and like code review the thing that the machine wrote without understanding the way that it did it. And it, again, it does things in ways that are a little bit like off kilter from the way that an analyst would actually do it. It's a very painful thing to be like, all right, great, here's a 50 line query that I have to figure out what this thing is trying to do and if it's right. And so I think it's actually much more effective to be like, let me tell you roughly the query I want to write, where I just dump out a bunch of like, do this, join this, join this, join this, do it. And sort of like the way I would just yell at you if I wanted someone to write it. And then they like, it just takes all that and, and does the like tedious work of turning it into a query. That to me is like a much more effective way that these things get used today than, than the like business question to query. And when you're looking at e now we're looking at the current state of large language models for coding workflows. And I, and I agree with a lot of the limitations that you lay out. I think providing that really deep context over the company's data and translating from business questions to SQL queries is going to be much more challenging than we expect it to be. But if you project a lot of the current capabilities into the future, how do you see these capabilities ushering in the weirdness that were described earlier? What do you think will be weird about potential analytics workflows in the future? Two things, I think. One is that even if they're not, I, I, think, I think it'll be a long way. And this is, I don't know, these things move pretty quick. And so I, I, in the early days of COVID, I was always like, this thing will be over in two weeks. And then I'm like, it'll be over in a few months. I was always basically like a month behind what was actually happening. And I feel the same way about this stuff. Where I'm like, it definitely can't do this. And then a month later, it's no, it actually did a pretty good job of that. With all of this, with I have you know no idea how to pick future, it seems like they're going to struggle for a while with just like writing a really good query out of the box. And part of that is also, again, I think like a little bit of a misuse of what they're good at, where it's like they are creative. They aren't great at taking directions exactly. Us using them to do things that are very much taking directions and not being creative is like a little bit of a misuse of the technology. But I don't think they're going to be great at it, like writing a, you know, asking complex business questions to generating exactly the perfect query from there. The two things I do think that they will be good at that are the things that'll start to get weird is if they get good enough, at like understanding a question, I think we can start to build infrastructure that is designed to help them answer those questions that doesn't quite, it's, it's like right now, there's a lot of people being like, let's take the documentation that we wrote for analysts and stuff it into the context of this thing. Let's take the queries that analysts wrote and stuff it into the context of this thing. It's all like taking things that were designed for today and trying to help the model understand stuff. And it's actually, we may end up realizing that if we build things specifically for it, it's going to get a lot better. So part of that is, you know, this is something like ThoughtSpot, the company that Mo got acquired by, has been thinking about this stuff a lot. They have basically built an underlying semantic model that is designed for an LLM to, to use as opposed to designed for a human to use. That kind of concept to me, you could extend in a lot of different directions where it's like, the system, instead of it being all designed for humans where we stick an LLM on top, it's like, these things have some weird properties and, and some things that are slightly different than humans. What if we cater to those weird properties instead of catering to people? The second thing I think that is like potentially weird is the way to me that the times I've tried to use them to do like analysis, they're not great at writing a query, but they're pretty good when you're like, let me describe to you a situation. This number's up, this number's down, these are what these things. What should I look at next? Come up with some ideas. They give you some pretty good ideas of like, here are 10 hypotheses about why this could be the case. And you're like, how do I explore that? And they go and you give you some ways to like questions you could ask. Like it's not doing the work for you. It's doing what analysts say is the fun part. It's doing the part of coming up with the creative stuff. And to me, that's a little bit of what this actually could do is it's like 
a lot of people say, oh, LMs, they'll automate the parts of the job we don't like, and we'll get to focus on the fun part. I'm not sure they're not going to just do the fun part. I'm not sure <laughs> become the query writing robot that is responding to the prompts that it's telling us to do about you should try this or try that, because that's actually what they're a lot better at. And so, I don't know, there, there is a, a sort of weirdness there to me where the job that we want is like sitting there and thinking about problems and solving puzzles is like, they might be better at that than we are. And then when you're talking here about the, this is very fascinating, you're talking about the potential uses of large language models for the actual creative aspects of the data job. And even when you mentioned that first element of providing the large language model infrastructure to be able to ask better questions about the organization's data, combined with that ability to come up with creative problem solving, I think could be radical in the future. Let's maybe focus here on what that world will look like. In a lot of ways, the current interface we have with data, I think tables, BI tools, IDEs, are not built for a world where machines can potentially reason about problem solving, code different solutions. How do you view the future of the data interface there then? And what do you think our interaction as analysts with data will look like? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I, I think it's possible that, that you know, we... They're not good enough at this yet. And they're, it's a little bit of a pain. Like, honestly, I think they're in some ways, like one of the things that's also hard here is you have to be very particular about what you tell it to do. Like when you're trying to say like, hey, I want you to help with a thing, you end up sort of being like, and here's this. Like it's it's work to tell it what you needed to do. And so I think like, there's some stuff there where it's still not a great process. But I think that one, like we may end up just spending a lot of time. It's not prompt engineering. Like I think prompt engineering is... The, the analogy I'd use on this is back when search engines first came out, I remember like in middle school, people were like, you need to learn how to do various Boolean search stuff in Google. Like you need to learn how to include this word minus this word. And there's like a little bit of like a query language in there that was like, this is the future is this sort of language. And that was right in the sense that Googling was the future. And it's a very, like, if you can Google things, that's a valuable skill. But it wasn't right in the sense that that's not how you learned how to, it wasn't, you learned this like particular language for Googling it. It was you like, you learned how the system worked. You learned the ways around it and how to sort of make it do the things you wanted it to do. I could imagine there being the same thing that happens here where like prompt engineering, which is this kind of like more structured, how do I use Langchain or whatever became the first version. But to me, that's like the query language and Google thing. Really what it is, is it's like, you kind of learn the tendencies of the models. You kind of learn like how to coerce it into doing the thing you want it to do. And so I can see there certainly being a, the analyst job is partly like combining the skills that you have as like reasoning through a business problem, but also coercing like the LLM that is probably better at some of these things than you are into helping you do what you want to do. And so it's like figuring out the way to sort of operate the machine where like, all right, I need to describe the problem to it. I need to help it like coach me on some stuff. It'll come up with some ideas. There, there's this, I, it just came out yesterday, but it's a book I want to read. There's a guy who wrote, I don't remember his name, Seth Davidson. He, he wrote a book called Everybody Lies. It was about like the things that people admit to Google because they're like looking for stuff and they think nobody's looking Seth, at Google. Seth Stephen Davidowitz. Yeah, yeah. But he just wrote a book that was about the MBA. And the gimmick of the book was he wrote it in 30 days with all AI, where he essentially did a bunch of like analysis and stuff on it. And it was all like, he basically just like chat GPT to book. And I'm interested in reading that because I think like that probably is how this actually works. It's like he produced a hundred page book full of analysis in 30 days. Is it good? I don't know. But there is some skill in that that I'm sure that he developed that isn't prompt engineering. It's not strictly analysis. It's like, 
figuring out how to use this thing to be really, really effective and fast at doing analysis. And I think that's probably like what this really looks like is you learn how to do that sort of stuff. I don't know. What does that mean? I don't know. But like, how would you have told someone in 1990, you're going to have to learn how to be a really effective Googler if you want to be a functioning human being in the world. I don't really know what you'd even say, but you're like, look, there's going to be this kind of weird technology. It's going to do all this crazy stuff, but you're going to have to be really good at it. Otherwise, you're going to be like incapable of functioning in modern society. And it seems sort of like that's what this is. It's not go take a bunch of courses on the ins and outs of LLMs. It's kind of like you're just going to have to learn how to ride the bike. Yeah, it's hard to predict here. And especially when we think about how the skill set of the modern data analysis data practitioner will evolve. If we take the assumptions that we're discussing, that more and more LLMs will be able to assist in creative problem solving and in actually creating a lot of the code that you know goes into a solution, what do you think will be the main skill sets data practitioners will need to evolve and develop in the future? Like what will be, you know, let's say grad school in 2030 for a data degree will look like? I mean, I, th I think grad school will be the same. I think it'll be, <laughs> gonna be it's going to be a bunch of learn some MATLAB and some like stats. Will it be useful? I have a different question, but it, uh, I think it'll be the same. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think like they, the skills that will make people good I mean, honestly, it's probably like the skills that make people good now, which is, well, okay. Actually, I think it's the skills that make people good now, but maybe like in a different way. So, so there's this interesting thing. This is a, this is like a, a more, I don't know, delving into philosophy that I can pretend I'd understand things about, but I don't. One of the things to me that is tricky about LLMs is they're able to make pretty convincing arguments and do pretty convincing like analysis. Like this, I imagine this NBA book has convincing charts in it. And logical arguments and data analysis are hard to poke holes in. That's the point. This is sort of like debate club. If you, you argue with someone who's really good at debate, they're going to defeat you at debate. Not because their argument is better or like they're right, but just because like they know how to play the game. And LLMs know how to play the game. They know how to say stuff that's convincing. And I think that there's something that's tricky about this where when you can just say to an LLM, make a good argument for this point or like do analysis on this thing, it will give you something that is relatively convincing. And there is no like foundational truth to that thing. Like if I have to come up with an argument that is convincing about some analysis, I'm not that smart. And so I don't find good arguments in it unless they're relatively easy to find. It's hard for me to go and find the totally obscure thing that proves my point. The reason I was able to make a good argument is because the argument, good argument was like fairly close to the surface. But if you're like this all-powerful super, not that all-powerful supercomputers, but like in effect, if they're all-powerful supercomputers that can always connect the dots in this thing that tells a compelling story, everything will look compelling. And we're not that good at figuring out if it's not. And so I think like actually in a lot of ways, the job of an analyst will be what the job of probably this the Seth was in writing this book, which is this thing is going to give you a thousand things that all sound pretty convincing. Which ones are real? What actually is truthful in this? Like it's, if, I, if I ask it to be like, give me a very convincing, you know, this is a, a different example, but say like, give me a very convincing analysis on why drinking a glass of wine every day is good for you. It'll give me something very convincing. And I say, give me a very convincing argument on why drinking a glass of wine every day is bad for you. It'll give me a very convincing argument. What do I do? Like, my job is to read these things and actually be like, this one seems better. And that's like pretty hard to do. And so I think actually a lot of the job of this could be 
We have a thing that will tell you whatever you want. It'll give you a convincing argument for any point you want to make. My job is like, we'll try to figure out which one's better. Like it's to sort of moderate the debate, you know? I don't know. Do you think that makes the data job better? I think it makes it not better for the, there's some people who like, I want to put on my headphones. I want to sit in a room and have my three monitors and write code. Like I want to be an engineer. I like that mindset of like solve the puzzle. I don't think it's better for that because I think you become less of a builder. I think you become less of like, I'm creating a system. I think you become more of a, I got to reason about a bunch of stuff. I got to sit here and just think about which one makes sense and kind of like poke holes in it. And there are, (laughs) some analysts love that. Some analysts love being the person who's let me debunk every single thing you say because that's like fun. So I think in some ways it's that. But if you are the analyst that like got into it because you actually have the mindset of an engineer, I think it's kind of less of that. One thing that we we haven't yet discussed on, you know, the potential uses or the weird avenues large language models open up when working with data is something that you mentioned in your most recent article, Average Text. You describe a hypothetical world in which a bar owner summarizes user interviews grouped by age group using a simple query where here we use a fictional SQL function called Average Text. This, in my opinion, really well illustrates a potential for large language models and surfacing really detailed granular insights from unstructured data that will fundamentally change how organizations make decisions. If you can, at a fly, summarize user interviews grouped by demographics try to, or grouped by product, for example, to try to understand how a particular group feels about your product, I think that gets you much closer to reality than just behavioral exhaust. So walk us through how you view AI will fundamentally change, you know, how we work with this type of data and what you think the opportunity here is. To me, a lot of the data industry has gotten built up around, and like data industry, sort of be bigger than, the data industrial complex, we'll say. Like <laughs> the, the it's, it's partly like data companies, but it's also like yeah. this mindset, like data is the truth. This is, you know, that kind of stuff. I think a lot of that has been built up because data is the, it feels scientific. And in some places, it, like if you are trying to make a vaccine for COVID, great, please do the science. But if you're like a product manager trying to make a decision about something, you actually just like want to understand what customers think. And data is an artifact of that. It is not what they think. It is, you know. It's a proxy. Yeah. And it's a lousy proxy, to be honest. Like in some ways it is, but it's okay. We see what people do, but like we interpret a bunch of intention from that. But really you're still just trying to get at the intention. Like really you just want to know like what's in these people's heads. Unstructured data, customer feedback, interviews, user research, basically is what's in people's heads. And you can't just take them at face value. You can't just be like, this is what this person says, therefore we have to do exactly what they say. Obviously you have to sort of still think about what it is, but there's, there is so much more richness in that than the kind of exhaust that comes out of their behavior. But I don't think we think we like view the unstructured one as the like soft, squishy stuff that's not as valuable because we don't have like scientific implements around it. And so I think that not that LLMs give you the scientific implements exactly, but they give you ways to look at unstructured data at scale, potentially, where it's not like, great, we did an interview with 10 people. How do we like extrapolate this, but also add all of the caveats that it was 10 people and who knows and all this stuff. It's actually, what if you can look at a thousand customer interviews? You can look at 10,000 and sort of like summarize them and like do that in a way that scales. It starts to be like, you can look at a data set that is as rich as what you would get in this unstructured stuff but with some of the like properties of looking at things at scale. 
some of the like, okay, their statistical significance isn't exactly the right thing, but like some rough concept of, hey, a bunch of people said this. It's probably real. We don't have to just be like, well, we talked to 10 people and eight of them said it, so that's probably enough. It's no, it, we can look at kind of the totality of how people feel and stuff like that. And so if you can do that, there's a lot more richness, I think, there than there is in whether or not somebody visited, visited a pricing page. Like right now, if we want to understand, is our product priced correctly? The way that we'll do it is look at people who visit the pricing page and what do they click on and try to do some sort of demographic things of like the people who fit this, clicked on this, and try to infer a bunch of things from that. And to some extent, that's not bad. But what would be better is what if everybody visited the pricing page, you said, as they're leaving the pricing page, can you give us a 15-second audio clip of how you feel about our pricing and we'll send you a $5 gift certificate to Starbucks immediately? For 15 seconds, I would do that. I'd click the button and be like, I think it's too expensive. And now if you have all that information, like that's going to tell you way more than you trying to infer a bunch of weird stuff from like user behavior. Does it work? Maybe, maybe not. But I think if we start to think about unstructured data as being the information in there being more accessible and we start to try to collect more of it, it feels like there's a lot more sort of informed decisions you can make that way than you would off of, again, trying to parse your way through how people feel through this kind of like the footsteps that they leave behind. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And you could probably use an NLM system of some form to scale the amount of interviews that you can make in a short period of time as well to get. So it's interesting once you, you know, open up the imagination to how these systems can fit into the data collection workflow as well. So at, now we're talking about, you know, a lot of the long term stuff and kind of what we expect to be weird in the future. But let's also focus on the short term ThoughtSpot, which you are part of now. You know, you mentioned the semantic model of working with large language model, in my opinion, has a great elegant solution of embedding AI into the analytics workflow. Maybe walk me through how you view the short term of AI and analytics and data. I don't think that much changes. I think like people will, in in the short, immediate term, it's like people trying to figure out what works, a lot of experimentation, a lot of things that are going to be busts, honestly. Thoughtspot has been doing this for a long time. And one of the things that that you know I appreciated about it when we started talking to them before the acquisition was they have been in the trenches of this stuff for a while. Like they had been building things that were sort of AI powered well before the LLM hype. And so they had seen the things that work and don't work and had been through the like, what if a chatbot wrote a SQL query? And they're like, oh God, this is not going to be good. And so I think there will be a lot of experimentation with chatbots to do that kind of stuff. And every, you see that you know, like every data tool has some flavor of product that's like, right question and it'll magically write a SQL query. And I think we'll get kind of inundated with some bad versions of this just because it's a two-week project to build a wrapper around OpenAI or BARD or whatever. It's a nine-month project to make that thing like good enough. I think a lot of people do the the two-month version. It won't be that good. It'll like slowly fade because that doesn't really work. People are frustrated by it. But I, the thing that I'm hopeful of is in doing that, people also experiment with a lot of new stuff. That it's not just like, kind of to your point of like the beer app. Somebody made the beer app. I guess the beer app's kind of creative, but okay, kind of a weird thing. But the first apps, they were all kind of the same stuff. It was all like some social media thing or whatever. But then people were like, there's all these other interesting things you can start to do with it and ways you can start to create variants of that where it's like some of them actually become pretty powerful and really useful. And so my hope is that people will experiment basically. And like as folks now, we'll have to go through sort of an experimental phase. There's a bunch of weird stuff that people are creating. Some of it will be like, this is all bizarre and awful, but people will uncover ways that like, really help. I think Copilot's the first version of that where 
it's not a build me an app that does this. It's like there's a really fancy autocomplete where you can pseudo turn pseudo code into code. I think it's a good idea. Again, is there other things where you can like it can start to you can start to ask it more like how do I th- reason about this problem in a way that feels very natural? Where you're not having to go over to Chat GPT and describe four pages of context. Like here's the business problem and just like, that sort of stuff where you have this sort of assistant that's going to guide you through how to think analytically. Somebody might about that. I think that'd be cool. Like that sort of stuff. I think is what we'll start to see more of is introductions of kind of new points of injection into or like new people inject this technology into various points and like how they work. Some of it will be all obnoxious and not very good, but some of it will be like, oh, wow, this actually really makes things better. And then we'll all sort of like, you know, start to copy the stuff that works. Okay, exciting stuff. Now, Ben, as we wrap up today's episode, do you have any final notes or message to share with the audience before we wrap up today's conversation? No, I appreciate you having me on. The main note is, I don't know, I'm just like shooting a bunch of things from the hip here. So don't take any of this as me having any idea what I'm talking about. I assume that the future will look entirely different than anything we talked about today. Uh, <laughs> definitely, everyone. I'll do the plug uh, instead of you here. Check out Ben's Substack. Releases every Friday, correct, Ben? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really illuminating. Uh, it's definitely on my weekly reads list for me as well. So yeah, everyone, do check out Ben's Substack. We're going to leave it in the show notes as well. Awesome. I appreciate it. And again, thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks a lot, Ben, for coming on the podcast. Mm-hmm.